Chapter 68 Klaus was astounded at the amount of human energy that can be released by pushing all conflicts into the unconscious. He was an educated man. He knew that the Nazis represented a radical break with European traditions. But then Germany had never really been part of Europe anyway. That Europe, the Europe he had studied in England, the Europe of reason and compromise and all the natural difficulties of different viewpoints. In Germany, there were no different viewpoints. There was one note. You could play it loud or soft. Klaus had been out of Germany for six years. When he had returned, he had mostly stayed at his father's house. He had spent a little time in the larger cities, mostly Berlin and Hamburg, but they became depressing as the depression worsened. His city friends had scattered with the onset of Nazism. A few had fled, most had joined. His local friends, the rural idiots, he called them, were largely indifferent to politics. They were happy that the Nazis were in power because they got to keep their farms, which had been mortgaged to the hilt during the Depression, when it was impossible to make a living from honest crops. But such city matters as freedom of the press didn't trouble them much. In his new Nazi experiment, Klaus had tried talking to them about Hitler, but it didn't do any good. It was quite fascinating, and he found it hard to avoid the alienating contempt of the intellectual. They could only see politics in the most local, tangible, and practical of terms. They cared nothing for freedom, the Reichstag, or the death of the Republic. They wanted good reigns and dependable insurance. They wanted their sons to work and their daughters to get married. They wanted to go to church and sit with a pipe. They wanted to know the words to every song that could be sung. They were the rhythm of the land, of the seasons, of the decades between birth, marriage, and rebirth. When he was younger, Klaus thought that they might be wise in their own slow, stolid way. But now he knew that it was not so. Extend that principle, he thought, and trees become sages. The Nazis were a curious bunch. Klaus could never quite decide if they believed their own propaganda or not. They would seem to. Some of the Salon evenings at Count Orski's were most passionate on this point, but in their very next breath they could as easily say that all these lies were only designed for the masses, and that whoever swallowed such idiotic bait was utterly unsophisticated. Klaus could not follow their transitions. Another curious item was the Nazis' ability to combine a hatred of authority with an absolute allegiance to the Führer. When Klaus, early on, began to point out some of the contradictions inherent in the Nazi theory of life and history, he was reviled. Any attempt to bring the authority of logic or experience on their beliefs was considered more insulting than a physical attack. They hated external authorities, but crawled before the image of Hitler without a thought. Most odd. Their attitude towards religion was strange as well. Hitler was compared to Christ, as someone who suffered, fought, and bled for the sake of freeing his people. The Germans were the chosen people, 
a phrase which, in conjunction with their anti-Semitism, was strikingly strange. Destined by God to rule over mankind! Yet they did not like traditional Christianity. Endless arguments raged about the creation of a Nazi church. Hitler was divine, there was little question of that, but what relationship did Hitler have to Christianity? The permutations were endless, the arguments exquisite. It seemed to Klaus, at times, as if he were transported back in time to some of the more obscure debates of medieval scholasticism. Where did the next generation after Cain and Abel come from? There was no other woman. Incest? Nazis could not sit still for long. Well, that was only mostly true. Most of them could not. Some of them sat perfectly still. They had thin little round glasses, frozen facial expressions, and acerbic tongues. They were paper flesh around some sort of icy core. Coagulated rage was a phrase which popped into Klaus's mind from time to time. There were those who were in it for the violence. That was clear. Klaus remembered this type from the twenties, the men who had come of age in the Great War and had very little use for life in Civi Street. They lived for the military life. They were, in their personal lives, extremely disorganized. They loved the training, the uniforms, the camaraderie, staying up half the night singing, the regular meals, the external regimentation, the sense of purpose. They loved the excitement of violence. Then there were the degenerates. Something in the Nazi life had loosed the restraints of sexual deviance. It might have had something to do with Julius Streicher, who always carried a whip, had a legendary collection of bestial pornography, and had private parties which only the basest imagination could picture. Klaus was occasionally tempted to ask if Streicher was the kind of German who represented the master race, but never did. He could imagine the answer, Certain men are above morality, they represent a higher ethos, they cannot be judged by historical standards, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't that Klaus didn't believe in any of these things. He did. And he didn't. He tried explaining this to his father once, soon after his indoctrination began. Martin was clearly going through some profound moral crisis, which Klaus found both amusing and depressing. To imagine that there is one answer to all these questions which have merely been placed in our minds as pleasant diversions. Martin had asked him whether he thought the Nazis were immoral. I know that this is delicate, son said Martin earnestly one night after everyone else had gone to bed, because you're sort of in the thick of things, but I have to know what you think. About what? The Nazis being immoral? Klaus smiled. I, I would say that that is sort of like the question posed to a man, the question of how is your wife? His answer, <laughs> compared to what? Klaus laughed. I think that is brilliant. You could spend your whole life thinking about that exchange, and still not be done. In your heart. In your heart. 
Oh, father, <laughs> you suffered a lot to get me educated. Surely you don't want me to fall back on such a faulty oracle. But they have concentration camps? It is rumored? Yes. Yes, I'm sure they do. I would actually be shocked if they didn't. So, what do you think? I hope I never end up in one. But if I did, well, that would just be the next chapter in the story. You shouldn't be so attached to things, father. It was strange how, since the coming of the Nazis, father and son had changed places as far as their authority went. Klaus sat perfectly composed. Martin sat hunched over, staring at the wooden table. I don't know whether to act against them. Klaus smiled. I am glad that you trust me enough not to think I will turn you in. Our relationship has improved considerably. If you did, started Martin, then paused. If you did, then I wouldn't have to decide. Just experience. Martyrdom is easier than questioning. You can say that now. What do you think, though? insisted Martin, biting at his cuticle. Dad, you're going to chew your hand off said Klaus gently, taking his father's arm down. First of all, I don't think that my opinion is that important, but here it is. Part of me is horrified, I'll be honest. I think of what's going on in those camps, and I shudder. I, I, I feel sick. It's a natural reaction. Yes, exhaled Martin. But then, continued Klaus, just when I've worked myself into a fine traditional moral storm, I feel all the wind go out of my sails. In my mind's eye, my ship goes from great storm to glassy sea in an instant. And I think, so what? So what? echoed Martin, his eyes wide and empty. So what? said Klaus with sudden vehemence. So these sows and piglets want to be ordered around. So they might all end up being shot. So what? What have they ever done to earn or keep their freedom? An illiterate man will always take a hunk of bread over the freedom of the press. And even these so-called educated men, what happened to them? They did not put up much of a fight. The early Nazis all came from the universities. And the Jews, what do they do? You strip them of everything. They don't run. I actually get very angry at sheep that lick the knife, which will open them up. Don't you want to just crush them? You think, one good fight, one good show of resistance, and we will both be free. But they bleat and squirm to kiss your hand as it closes on their throats. Ah, who wouldn't want to rid the world of these people? Intellectuals? Whoever begs for their own immolation. The intellectuals? Who knows? Whoever. Because... Klaus frowned, wiping his high forehead. Martin noticed that the color seemed to have gone out of his son's fair hair. Blonde had just become pale. Because continued Klaus. There is one thing that is true that the Nazis say. One thing that, well, they weren't the first to say it, not by a long shot, which is why it has something to... Might does make right, but might is not what most people think it is. It isn't the gun. Might is not the gun. Might is the will to use the gun, not to die for a cause, but to kill for it. Christ in the temple whipping the money changers. People always follow whoever is the most sure, the most committed, the most consistent. Have you ever read 
the transcript of Hitler's trial for the beer hall putsch. It's almost beyond words. 1923, he tried to overthrow the government. Failed. Hauled in front of the court. The lawyers try to browbeat him, they say. You just wanted to seize power. Hitler smiles and says, but of course I wanted power. We all wanted to overthrow the government. I'm just sorry we failed. And they look like fools. He's had the same message since 1920. 25 points. 15 years. Who do you know who's kept exactly the same beliefs for that long? And he says to the sheep, he screams at them, I will kill the Jews and go to war. And they bleat and titter and give him the shepherd's crook. Hitler is like a principle of nature. He's like the wind that blew down a crumbling wall. Blame the wind? No. Blame the wall. And all the walls to follow like dominoes. Pop, pop, pop. Klaus gestured violently. If you... If you knew what was going to come, said Martin evenly, trying to keep the horror from his voice, would you have opposed them? Father, you can say it. Nazi, Nazi, come on, try it. Please, please, Klaus, I need to know. Would I have opposed it? Klaus frowned, looking away. Would I have opposed it? Can it be opposed? What I mean is, interrupted Martin, afraid that his son was going to go off on another tangent. What if everyone was just waiting for someone to say no? That's what terrifies me. If I stand up and say no, then perhaps everyone will say, oh my God, I was just thinking that, and they will all rise up as one. Rise up. <laughs> rise up, laughed Klaus contemptuously. From what? Who is unhappy? What glories were lost with the Republic? The November criminals, the signers of the Versailles Treaty, all dead. Everyone cheers. Just drive through town with a big picture of Hitler. Women will throw themselves at your car. In Berlin they faint in his presence. That's like going back to the 13th century and agitating for the overthrow of the Catholic Church. No one would have any idea what you were talking about. Not to mention that the Catholic Church might have an opinion of its own. Something someone once said to me keeps coming back to me. He was looking at a picture of a whole of Hindus all kneeling in prayer, thousands of them. And he said, everyone in that picture thinks that the person next to him is really talking to a god. He was a hopeless sinner, this man. But he had something not about god but about this, perhaps, this case of the emperor's new clothes? Oh, that would be too bad, father, said Klaus softly. That would be too bad if you ever said anything like that to anyone else. Yes, yes, perhaps. But I have to answer to a higher authority. A higher authority which put... Hitler, there, said Klaus slowly, above you, well-armed. Sometimes there is the test of obedience, said Martin, and sometimes there is the test of disobedience. Klaus almost spoke, then got up and poured himself a cup of water from a stone jug. Martin could not help but notice how his son's clothes hung loosely on his body. 
Let me ask you something, said Klaus, returning to the table. As he sat, a ripple of displaced air guttered the candle. Why didn't you oppose them? Oh, I've asked myself that daily. I believe in authority. The Republic could not last, but, but why all the murder? You mean you wanted to give a man absolute authority, but have him use it well? Yes, said Martin, without any trace of irony. What made you think that was possible? Divinity, divine power. If God put him there, he would guide his actions. So you thought Hitler was divine? Not Hitler, no, don't blaspheme. But his course, his cause. Martin could not resist going for his cuticle again. How could he have done it? Ah, uh, the great question, said Klaus with slow sensuality. The greatest question, I think, in the history of the world. How did he do it? How does anyone do it? It's very simple, father. Because we agree with him. We agreed with him. From the very beginning. Germany was great. We were betrayed at Versailles. We didn't start the war. Logic is French prejudice. Emotions are everything. Democracy is decadent. Strength is all. We are encircled. Either a nation expands or it is destroyed. Klaus snorted. <laughs> How were we going to fight him? We agreed with him. Not all, whispered Martin, unable to find his voice. <laughs> Do you want to know one of the funniest things I've heard? <laughs> Do you know where Hitler got his army? His civilian stormtroopers. It's the most wonderful thing. <laughs> oh, the government paid them. The government paid for its own executioners. <laughs> the simple German taxpayer paid to be enslaved for a thousand years. What are, what, what, what are you talking about? Germany was the first welfare state in the history of the world. <laughs> the American New Deal is nothing. The young men and women who joined the Nazi party turned over all their unemployment benefits to Hitler. Klaus giggled. <laughs> Can't, you? Can't you just love that with your whole heart? <laughs> the Republic funded the Nazis. <laughs> Oh, that's another idea you could spend your whole life on. <laughs> and we wonder why it fell. <sighs> you see, uh, the government is nothing but violence. Do you know what that means? Martin shook his head numbly. His son was on to something important. It means, said Klaus, that every time a man <laughs> wants the government to do something, something to protect him or, or nurture him or, or care for him or educate him or save his soul or lead him, that he is saying that violence can achieve goodness. <laughs> Klaus giggled again. He was very restless. And this man... <laughs> <laughs> this man, this very same man, will be shocked when the state turns against him. <laughs> Why? Why? He has said to the government, use violence on my behalf. 
<laughs> what can he say if someone says more violence or that the violence should be used on someone else's behalf? What can he say to that? What? That the government should not use violence? But he has already asked the government to use violence. <laughs> or that the government should use less violence. But that's like a master thief saying to a lesser thief, you should steal less. Not convincing, not convincing at all. But I have never asked the state to use violence. Klaus scowled. You support public education? But, but, that citizens must be educated. Why? Don't tell me. For the sake of democracy, we were the most educated population on the planet, and look what happened to us. The government has to use violence. It's... All it has to use. Taxation is violence. Regulation is violence. Redistribution is violence. State education is violence. There is nothing else. You see, the strategy of the statists is to give you one good that you desperately want, universal education or health care, and say that the government will do it. And so the violence begins. And here is where it ends. So it should all end? The government should do nothing? <laughs> oh, Lord, Father, laughed Klaus. I'm just an observer. I'll probably think just the opposite next week. The conversation had not gotten them very far. True to his word, Klaus was of another opinion the next week. But his thoughts that night struck Martin violently. It was, perhaps, the start of his political education, and he pondered them for many, many days. Klaus did view his Nazification as a kind of psychological self-experiment. He tried out many different approaches, but settled on one final approach, which seemed to work best. A mind, untended, produces nothing but weeds. That was the fatal flaw of the emotionalists, the mystical romantics who claimed that feelings alone were the road to truth, and that the child within was our most sacred oracle. If that is the case, thought Klaus, then we would not need to control the chocolate intake of eight-year-olds. Now, Klaus's mind was not untended, he had spent a great deal of time exploring his weeds. He knew them all. He thought they were flowers. He had no real willpower, not of the empirical kind, but he was greatly curious. History had come to an end, he realized, because history is the study of causes which can be predicted. Otherwise, it is useless, for a history which has no effect on the future is nothing but a hobby. And now, in Germany, no cause could be predicted. Or, if it could be predicted, the prediction could never have any use in shaping the future. A historian realizes dictatorship leads to war. He says so. He is shot by the dictator. History is useless. So, in a way... Klaus, as a historian and a person, had come to an end. And so, really, there was nothing to study anymore except his own 
ending. And to this he applied himself with his customary energy and curiosity. First of all, he thought, you have to suspend critical judgment. Go with the moment. Contradictions are an indication of a higher truth. So is consistency. Whatever is, is true. Everything you feel is true for you. If you hate Hitler with all your heart, then that is true for you. But it no more follows from the feeling that Hitler is hateful, that Hitler is hateful, than that blue is the best color just because you like it most. Impulses must always be followed. Klaus found this process very interesting. He expected, on adopting this rule, that both good and bad, to use an ancient terminology, impulses, would follow. He would want to punch a shopkeeper and kiss an old woman. But it wasn't so. He felt the urge to punch the shopkeeper, but the old women were safe. But what to do when he had the impulse? Ah, That was a tricky one. He was in a tobacconist's buying some chewing gum when he realized he had an impulse to punch the shopkeeper. He was a man in his early twenties with absolutely horrible acne. Handing over a mark note, Klaus felt rage and pity. Pity because the man was grotesque rage because he inflicted it on people. He imagined the man cooking his eggs and felt physically ill. He wanted to punch the man, but the thought of getting his burst acne goo all over his fist was even more ghastly. He would prefer to shoot him from a distance. Klaus didn't have a gun, so he said, Keep the change. Your skin is disgusting. I would like to shoot you. If the man's natural skin had been visible from under his acne, it would surely have gone pale. Klaus found it compelling to speak his impulses out loud. He knew that it was cowardly, but gave himself some time to make the transition. He got more and more used to it. Of course, his Nazi uniform helped. He felt himself dissolving into his uniform as he walked and squawked. He saw a suit in a shop window suspended by wires with a hat floating above air and shuddered. I want to break this window and set fire to the shop and then stay and burn, he murmured, then forced himself to turn and walk away. He waited for more benevolent impulses to strike him. He would see a little girl hesitating before crossing the street and would frown, waiting for his feet to take him over and give her a hand. Nothing. The beatings at home for his younger siblings had diminished as Martin wrestled with his conscience, but Klaus would lie in bed or on the sofa waiting for the desire to go and kiss them better. Nothing. He got more headaches, but it was easier in so many ways. No more wrestling with choices, consequences, endless questions. If I do not feel it, I do not do it. There were exceptions, of course, just so the experiment could continue. Sometimes his hand 
would lie heavily on his bouncing alarm at five o'clock. He should get up, eat, wash, and drive to the aerodrome by six to train yet another flotilla of pilots. But he would lie there, letting his mind wander the blowing fields of his indifference. If I rise and go or stay and die, what does it matter to the universe, to my bed, to me? But he would be shot if he didn't go. You did not disobey the Führer for existential reasons, even if you were obeying him for the sake of an existential experiment. He was Austrian, uneducated. Even though the world spirit was in him, he just wouldn't understand. Chapter 69 Like most bored, dissatisfied people, Cuthbert was an early riser. It helped his irritation to be up earlier. He liked to sit in the solarium of his large London flat, sip tea, and gaze over the lightening, still-sleeping city. To be up early while everyone else was still abed was deeply satisfying. He felt like a virtuous farmer coming back from milking while his city guests still snored. As he watched the city, his hands wandered. It was a good time for some meaty scratching. He jumped when the telephone rang. It was Saturday, March 7th, 1936. Yes, what? he asked. Cuthbert liked being snappy in the early morning. It gave the appearance that he was always busy, always exacting. Cuthbert, it's Reginald. There was a short pause. When Reginald spoke again, his voice broke, like surf against a cliff. Cuthbert, Germany has entered the Rhineland. They met at the office within an hour. It was just the two of them. How did you learn? asked Cuthbert. My brother is there, said Reginald. He telephoned. Does anyone else know? Reginald shook his head. Chin up, lad, snapped Cuthbert. This is where we earn our pay. He grabbed a notebook from his desk and opened it. All right, we make a list. God damn that kraut. It has to be a Saturday. All our precious ministers are away for the weekend. Nothing official can happen until Monday. Except what we do. He glanced down at his hands, which were shaking. Gosh, the weight of the free world. Can't we telephone them? Cuthbert laughed. Oh, my dear boy, if they had telephones, they could be telephoned. No, the world must grant them their rest. It's hard getting up for Parliament once a week. None of them? Well, Churchill, perhaps. But he's the last one we'd want chiming in on this little German adventure. Hmm? For the sake of British honour, we must go to war. Bring me my musket, damn it! Eden? Cuthbert shook his head. Out of town. They all are. It's up to you and me. It's time for a list. Pros and cons. Military response 
or protest with the League. All right. Let's start with the pros. Military response. Sends a message. Might push him back. Anything else? Reginald paused, then shook his head. All right. Cons. Another world war. France is between elections. Useless. The British population is entirely pacifist. Huh, I'll get to test Einstein now. Sorry? Oh, you know, Einstein the pacifist. He said if just 2% of the population stays home when called up, war cannot happen. We can't throw that many people in jail. Cuthbert smiled. I appreciate his entry into my profession. I've sent him my opinion on particle physics. I'm sure he will find it about as useful. He looked down at the paper. We have no real army. What we do have is tied up in the Mediterranean. Our air force is pretty pitiful. Navy is good. Navy is always good. Good for a blockade. Not great for a land war. And we have Locarno. If France fights, we have to support her. Thoughts? If it, if it's Germany marching into her own backyard, it's not worth the war. If it's the thin edge of the wedge, then it is worth a war. I don't, I don't know," said Reginald. His face was red. His forehead prickled with sweat. Sit down," said Cuthbert. "You look all done in." I. You know, I, I, I thought exams were bad. It's just another kind of test, smiled Cuthbert. Reginald averted his eyes from that smile. It doesn't all come down to us. Let's go to France. Reginald looked up. Sorry? Well, the French ministers are closer to us than our noble English ones. Let's hire an airplane and go to France. My brother is flying here this morning. Boy does get around, doesn't he? Why? He didn't say. Well, get him on the horn. Tell him we need a lift. Cuthbert stood and frowned, then sat. Now, where is that paper? What paper? Oh, something we sent to the cabinet a little while back. This German move has not been unexpected. They've been probing fairly openly. Eden told me that Goering asked him what England would do if France attacked Germany. In January, the French told us that the Rhineland was the question of the hour. By the time he landed and made his way to Chartwell, Tom was almost exhausted with the emotional strain of the past few days. He had been sent to the Rhineland by Churchill, who was convinced that a German move was imminent. He arrived to find the region in a frenzy. The locals believed that the Fuhrer was coming to take us home. They demanded a League of Nations plebiscite about reunion with the Fatherland. They demanded the tearing up of Versailles, of Locarno, of anything that kept them from their people. Their eyes were wide, averted. They seemed to speak like gramophones. Everything felt 
pre-recorded, robotic. Men told him proudly in bars that they were working on welcome banners in their spare time. Women shone with near-religious ecstasy about the coming of Hitler. Word had gotten around somehow that the British and French were negotiating with Germany about returning the Rhineland. This was expected to take another few years, but it was widely derided. What we want, said one young man, is not to be given back to Germany, but to be taken back by force. We are not England's to give, but we are Germany's to take. We are not a whore to be passed around. We are a bride to be ravished. Tom felt a terrible weariness on hearing this kind of talk. Weariness and a desire to hit such idiots. It was hard not to become vaguely elitist and specifically murderous. The vast majority of humanity is too stupid to live. What the hell do they want to go back to Germany for? There's no wonderful party that they're excluded from. They want to have their faces mashed under the Nazi heel. They are delirious for it. "'Tis a consummation they devoutly wish for. "'What is the matter with these people? "'Don't they have any sense?' "'Finally he could take no more. "'After hearing yet another scarred table of young men "'fulminate about the November criminals "'and the injustice of the Versailles Treaty, "'he lost his patience. "'You goddamned Germans!' he shouted, stunning them into a short silence. You complain and complain about the Versailles Treaty, about reparations and lost land. Yeah, you lost 65,000 square miles of territory and 7 million people and had to pay reparations. But did you know that when you imposed a treaty on Russia in 1918, the terms were much worse? How can you complain about a harsh peace treaty when the ones you impose are much worse? There was a short silence. God damn them, said one man finally. They're Slavs. We shall impose even worse treaties on the Jews, laughed another. Why do you want to enter a dictatorship, demanded Tom. It is only a dictatorship to you, said a third man. For a German to be commanded is true freedom. To sacrifice, to join, to submit to the rulers, that is divinity. Ecstasy, all we could wish for. You Westerners are selfish. You live only for yourselves. We have a higher purpose. We know joys you will never understand. Tom felt his face distort with rage. But you will bring war! War! They all called out, clinking their glasses. Do you know, said the first man, wiping the foam from his mustache, that there is only one terrible death for a German. To die on a mattress is the worst possible ending. To fall in battle is glorious! To glory! They all shouted. For a moment, Tom devoutly wished that he had not left his pistol in his airplane. In the next moment, he was glad that he had. The thought had passed through him with such force that he was sure he would have acted on it if he could have, that he had two choices. Shoot these men now while they were still in their cups and helpless, or shoot them later 
when they were armed, defended, and sober. For it will come, he thought. Then he remembered the rain of bombs which would also come, and thought, that will also come. We shall kill each other, though we shall never see each other again. Tom awoke long before dawn the next morning. He had slept, fitfully dreaming of endless black droning airplanes. When he awoke, the droning was real. He could not see their airplanes, but they were all around him. He sat up in bed, his heart pounding. He almost expected to hear the bombs falling to feel their impact through his mattress, but there was only the droning. And then another growling engine. He rushed to the window of his cheap hotel room. Below, in the darkness, a line of jeeps was coming down the street. A thin man in the front raised a megaphone to his lips. Germans of the Rhineland, arise and rejoice! The Führer has come to take you home! Arise! Rejoice! Across the street, Tom could see shutters opening. In the darkness, his eye caught little ripples of grey movement. Flower petals, thrown from balconies and windows, falling on the soldiers grinning in the dark. From the street, from the dark homes and shining eyes, the German national anthem arose. Germany, Germany, over all. Tom forgot to pay his bill. He was in his airplane within twenty minutes. He fired up his engine and took to the skies, racing across France, across the Channel to Churchill. Gunther was not there. This was the first time that Tom had had an interview with Churchill alone. The morning, shading up from grey, was cold, overcast, chilly. Tom could not stop shivering. Churchill woke up his cook and asked for hot chocolate. Churchill was not dismayed in the least. He kept rubbing his hands. So the wolf bites at last, he said with obvious satisfaction. It was always coming. Now it is here. I am sad to be proven right. I am always called a hawk by young and foolish idealists. But hawks can prevent war. Churchill laughed. <laughs> I love Gandhi. He is a consummate showman. I can appreciate that. Everyone says, if every nation is pacifist, if every nation disarms, there will be no war. Everyone forgets that if every nation is disarmed, the whole world will belong to the first nation willing to use arms. It's like saying, if every bank stores its money in boxes on the street, bank robberies will cease. But they are right. There will be no more hold-ups. But the money will still disappear. We shall just have made the job of the robbers all the easier, reduce their overhead, so to speak. It makes no difference if you hand over your money, or the robber shoots you and takes it. But that doesn't matter now. This is our last chance. We shall not be able to do it without bloodshed. That chance evaporated last year. We must go to France. Will you take me? Of course, said Tom. Churchill glanced down at his body, then wrinkled his nose. 
It is foolish, I know, but I must bathe. Sit on the toilet and tell me more. Tom had never really expected Churchill to be so frank with his nudity, but it was the case nonetheless. Tom sat on the toilet as Churchill scrubbed himself in the tub, peppering him with questions and blowing the occasional bubble. The only concession that Tom made to propriety was that whenever Churchill dropped his soap and squirmed and burrowed for it, he averted his eyes. The telephone rang a little after eight, just as they were ready to leave. "'Damn it!' said Churchill, hanging up. "'More times than not I regret picking that thing up. Letters let you think. We're going to have to stop at Heathrow and pick up Cuthbert Rathbone.' "'Who's that?' "'He runs things at the Foreign Office.' "'Oh!' "'You know him?' "'My brother's boss. Why are we getting him?' "'He can get us into the French PM's office more quickly.' and perhaps there will be a family reunion from both sides of the divide. He's bringing an assistant, he said. As the four of them flew across the channel, Tom strained to hear their conversation from the cockpit, but it was impossible. Reginald was cordial to Tom, but condescending. There was no doubt that he considered Churchill a dinosaur, and Tom a glorified chauffeur. They sat, all four of them, at ten o'clock in the morning, in the taxi to Paris. "'Look,' said Cuthbert, "'I appreciate having an MP with me, "'but you cannot report any specifics of our discussion. "'You are not a member of the ruling party. "'You are not exactly disinterested. "'Your views are well known. "'I would appreciate it if you would say as little as possible— during our meeting. You will be asked questions, of course, smiled Churchill. If you had access to the plane, why not go and get Anthony Eden? I mean me, of all people, to come and talk to France. You have many contacts there. Of course. I spent a lot of time in France during the Great War. I speak French tolerably. But still, I do have to know His Majesty's position on the matter of the Rhineland. I do believe that come Monday we can still combine with the French to push the Germans back over the line. But why? Why would we? We were negotiating with Hitler to give the Rhineland back to him anyway. Churchill blinked. His body heaved as the car bounded. The details of such matters are always complicated. The principles never are. If you are involved in a lawsuit with a man over the ownership of a car, and he decides to forestall the legal process by stealing it, your response should be clear. These quaint examples might work well with the readers of the Daily Mail, said Cuthbert, but they don't work with me. Things are more complicated. The more complicated things get, said Churchill with steel in his voice, the more simple principles are required. Yes, of course, said Cuthbert indulgently. International incidents are just like a story out of boy's own paper. What do you plan to do? Why, get the French to do nothing. Churchill nodded slowly. His great body seemed to deflate a little. It's not as much fun as playing at war continued Cuthbert, but of course war is no longer something we can play at. That is true, said Churchill slowly, and it was clear, to Tom at least, 
that it was true in more than one way. Because if the French respond with force, which I don't think they can do because more than a fifth of their troops have been withdrawn from the Rhineland and placed in the Alps for fear of Italian reprisals over their own Abyssinian boycotts, then England will be drawn in directly through the Locarno Treaty, and we will have to place troops on the continent for the first time since 1919 against Germany. And I think we all know where that will lead. Where? demanded Churchill. To war with Germany, of course. And how do you think that giving them the Rhineland free and clear will avoid such an outcome? They... Oh, Winston, you seem constitutionally unable to understand this. Germany is a proud country with a noble history. Englands cannot treat a great nation like a naughty boy forever. They are flexing their muscles precisely because we have constrained them so greatly. What if England had been banned from Shropshire by Germany? But that does not matter at all, thundered Churchill, his brow darkening. We do not ourselves institute Versailles or Locarno, but those treaties exist and carry heavy obligations. We cannot will them out of existence because we think they should have been written differently. Because if we do, then no British treaty will ever be worth anything. Because the next government can choose to uphold it or not, as they see fit. And the occasion seems to demand. Cuthbert smiled. I am happy, Winston, that you are taking the opportunity to get this all out of your system before we actually meet with the French. What is your plan? demanded Churchill. Please tell me that it's more than registering a protest with the League of Nations. Well, that is part of it. Naturally, I am not one of your pacifist constituents, interrupted Churchill. We both know that the League of Nations is dead. Well, if it is, replied Cuthbert, huffily looking out the window, I have yet to be informed of it. It is still a central pillar of HMG's foreign policies. And until we join the general exodus of the dictator nations and formally leave the League, it remains a central part of our calculations. What nonsense, muttered Churchill, sinking back in his seat. Tom wanted to know why Churchill had such contempt for the League of Nations, but knew that this was no time to expand his political education. He nodded at Reginald, who did not return the gesture. The French consulate took an hour to locate Pierre Laval. Something had changed in his demeanour. He entered, wringing his hands and pouring out profuse apologies. Tom could not follow the discussion. His French was too poor and the conversation too rapid. Reginald had to occasionally translate for Churchill, but the debate was, for the most part, quite efficient. Laval knew about the German occupation of the Rhineland. We are trying to locate and bring back to Paris the major ministers, but we have a problem, as you know, because we have no government. This crisis surmounts party politics, said Churchill. Doubtless, doubtless, replied Laval, but we shall have grave difficulties acting in the absence of a mandate. Cuthbert thrust his jaw forward, trying to regain control of the conversation. What have you done so far? We have cancelled some military leaves. There was a pause. Even Reginald expected the French to have done more. That's all? 
asked Cuthbert. Well, we did not wish to act without consulting our allies, of course. What is your plan? Well, that has everything to do with your intentions, replied Laval. Would you gentlemen like some coffee? Of course. You prefer tea. One moment. He got up smoothly, walked over to the high white door, opened it, and called out some instructions. Would you like anything else? Some eggs? Toast? No? Very well. He came back and sat down. It will be a few minutes. He laughed, <laughs> along with absent ministers we have to deal with an absent cook. For a Frenchman, that's an even greater calamity. Seeing no returning smiles, Laval plunged on. But you have come for business, not brunch, so let us continue. <sighs> Before I can advise my government, I must know what your government intends to do. We have several problems, replied Cuthbert. The British public is quite set against France at the moment because of the obvious cynicism of the Horror-Laval Pact regarding Abyssinia. The name of this pact also includes an English name, said Laval hotly. Yes, of course, but our minister has resigned his post. And then there is the matter of your mutual assistance pact with Russia, ratified last month, I believe. What of it? Well, said Cuthbert, the British public, despite some spotty red elements, is solidly anti-Bolshevik. They look at Germany as a hard-done-by former power. They look at Russia and see a virus which could also strike them. And Germany. Germany, echoed Laval. It would do us little good to resist Germany in the Rhineland if all it did was destabilize the German government. Hitler barely beat the communists two years ago. They would try again. And if they won? The good thing about the Germans is that they only care about the Germans. They want to unite the German-speaking people very well. We do not speak German. But the Bolsheviks want to rule the world. I cannot imagine Hitler agitating in England. The communists do already. Hitler is better for us than the Bolsheviks. Reginald leaned forward. Also, if Germany turns Bolshevik, they will be united with Russia, and will be, in time, able to throw their entire might westward against France, without the fear of a two-front war, which is what cost Germany its victory last time, as we all well know. There was a pause as the tea was brought in and distributed. Churchill spoke as they were all stirring. Cuthbert cursed himself for liking three lumps of sugar. "'Arguments from effect,' said Churchill, "'can go in any direction we please. "'If we do this, then Hitler does that, and the Russians do the other. "'But that is not how we should make our decisions. "'It is impossible to predict the future, but this is what we do know. "'The German army has tripled in size over the past year. "'They have broken Versailles. They have broken Locarno.' Herr Hitler aims to unite the German-speaking people. I do not agree with Mr. Rathbone that this unification does not concern our respective countries. I believe it does, most gravely. We are grappling with a thorny issue. Locarno clearly states that if France is attacked, England must come to her aid. The question before us is this. Does the unilateral abrogation of a solemn treaty constitute an act of aggression on Germany's part? I believe that it does and simply because of this fact. German tanks, airplanes, and infantry are in the Rhineland. If it is not an act of aggression, why is the military involved? And if it is an act of aggression, then it is clearly directed against France, 
because the demilitarization of the Rhineland was instituted to keep Germany weak on her western borders and to give France ample warning of a German attack. This considerably weakens France's defensive position. The facts are clear. Locarno must be invoked. We must resist the German aggression. The Val nodded slowly. And would you be willing to risk a general European war over this matter? Cuthbert started to speak, but Laval raised his hand. I know your answer, Monsieur Rathbone. I wish to hear Mr. Churchill's. This is what I think, said Churchill. His brow was knotted, his eyes narrow and dark. If Germany is allowed to occupy and fortify the Rhineland, then her western border will become virtually impregnable. She will be able to take a free hand in the east against Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, and we shall be able to do nothing to stop her. If we allow Germany to become strong again, a general European war will become inevitable. All that will happen is that we shall be much the weaker, and Germany much the stronger when war does come. But would you not say, said Laval, that the invention of the long-range bomber has rendered modern warfare impossible? Impossible is a dangerous word, Monsieur Laval. I do not think it has become impossible, certainly not for a mad dictator who holds the life of his own people in little regard. But if we believe that the bomber has made war all the more horrible, then should we not oppose Hitler before his air force becomes strong? He has already achieved parity said Cuthbert. "'Then we should not wait until he gains a numerical superiority,' retorted Churchill. "'We should act now!' "'You know what will happen,' cried Cuthbert, his face growing red. "'We bomb them. They bomb us. Hitler laughs at the carnage of the German cities. We get thrown out of government and the Labour Party is given power. They sue for peace and disarm.' We shall get only one shot at opposing Hitler, Winston. Is this the moment you would choose to do it? It is not my choice, replied Churchill. We are responding to a mad dictator. If this is the moment he chooses to test us, then so be it. May I speak? asked Reginald. Cuthbert and Churchill had reached an impasse. They sank back in their chairs, glowering. Laval gestured for him to continue. "'The problem, as I see it,' said Reginald, "'is that we don't really know what we mean by a state any more. "'Most of the occupants of the Rhineland are Germans. "'The Saar region has voted to return to Germany again "'because most of them are Germans. "'Western Czechoslovakia, Austria, the Danzig Corridor, "'all mostly German or German-speaking. "'We have for many years upheld the right of national self-determination. "'We shall not fare well if we oppose the right of the majority now "'if that majority decides to return to Germany.' And like all difficult problems, we have inherited it. After the war, plebiscites were held in regions favourable to separation from Germany, but not where separation from Germany would have been voted down, Laval interrupted. That is because England and America would not consent to the breaking up of Germany, which France desired and which would have been the sensible course. Churchill said, We shall scarcely make progress if we argue decisions almost twenty years old. If we squabble over the past, we shall lose the future. If we oppose the occupation of Rhineland by force, said Reginald, we shall be reneging on our belief in national self-determination. It is one or the other. Churchill said, 
the principle of national self-determination does not cover the slaughter of minorities. We say to a man, you have control over your own actions, but not if he acts for evil. So, snarled Cuthbert, we must forever remain the world's policemen. The purpose of England, replied Churchill, is not to betray our allies and balance the budget. England has chosen, or been chosen, to become a moral force in the world. That decision predates Versailles by more than a century. We may disagree with that mission, that role, but we cannot undo it in one day by words alone. It is our legacy, and it is not for us to cast aside because the burden becomes heavy. These old world crusades are a thing of the past, snorted Cuthbert. But, Mr. Rathbone, said Churchill, his eyes wide, it is a thing of the past which confronts us now, a murderous adventurer of the old school, a warlord, a beast in human form. He is not mad, said Reginald. We can negotiate with him. With what? asked Churchill. What do we have to offer him? Peace, replied Laval instantly. But he does not want peace. He has made that clear. And he is not mad, morally mad, of course, but very practical in his way, very cunning. He has not made a false move since the putsch in 1923. If we do not oppose him now, he shall continue his successes. What practical aid can England provide us? asked Laval. The scorn in his voice was unmistakable. Churchill winced. It will take us some time to build up our land forces. How long? asked Laval. Cuthbert sat back a smile on his face. Some months, over a year, and air forces. We are slightly better off. Some squadrons could be made available immediately. Tanks. We have one armored division. Churchill laughed humorlessly. Doesn't a hawk need claws, a beak? Churchill bowed his head. It was not my choice that we have languished unarmed for so long. Do you know, asked Laval, that the Germans have moved 140,000 men into the Rhineland? Churchill started. No, no, it cannot be so many. This is the information we have at our disposal. What if it is a defensive move? demanded Cuthbert. France signs a treaty with Russia. Germany feels encircled. They move to fortify their western borders. That's no reason to go to war. Churchill slammed his fist onto the table. Perhaps, uh, perhaps Hitler likes Rhine wine and doesn't want to pay duties. Perhaps it came to him in a dream. Perhaps he wants a swim. None of that matters. The fact is that we have unprovoked aggression. Versailles itself is a provocation, cried Cuthbert. This violates Locarno, which was freely signed by Germany. Germany has not been free since 1919. You are very concerned with the freedom of the German state, said Churchill scornfully, yet care nothing for the freedom of the German people who groan under a bloody yoke. They voted him in. Not all! We cannot decide our actions by trying to divine Herr Hitler's possible motivations, thoughts, dreams, desires, or wishes. We have the facts. He has broken a solemn treaty with military might. The League cannot act against him. Manchuria and Abyssinia have seen to that, and France will not act alone, said Laval emphatically. It will be perceived as aggression. England must 
join us. There was a commotion in the hallway, and then a tall, burly man entered dressed in full military regalia. His face was round, saddened by excess gravity. "'General Gamelin,' said Laval, rising. They all rose and shook hands. General Gamelin was the commander-in-chief of the French army. "'Gentlemen,' he said in a rough voice, refusing a proffered chair, "'we have continued intelligence of German troop movements.' One witness has said that there are not more than 40,000 troops. Also, we have reports that the German Air Force is similarly overestimated. They have been changing the insignia of the airplanes as they land to refuel to confuse us. We have no evidence of strong supply lines. It is my opinion that this is a thrust which will collapse under any determined opposition. The Germans are not ready to fight. Are we? General Gamelin asked Laval. The general paused, then nodded. Yes. The increase in the draft from one year to two has swollen our ranks. We have strong artillery and tanks. We have cancelled all leaves as of this morning. However, he said, his eyes hardening, we cannot respond to the Rhineland initiative without a general mobilization. Ah, uh, said Laval, quite crestfallen. Churchill scowled. This is not surprising, is it? No, said Laval, but Germany is frightened that we shall attack her. That is why she wants the Rhineland. If we mobilize all our forces, that might create a panic in Berlin. They might perceive our move as a precursor to general war. By seeking to avert war, we shall bring it on. Churchill smiled mirthlessly. That is, in essence, the root of both our positions. You believe that appeasement will avoid war. I believe that countering aggression will avoid war. "'History shall be the judge of that,' shrugged Laval, then smiled. "'But you write history, eh, Monsieur Churchill? "'Let us hope you are wrong, and can admit it in time.' "'I would rather be wrong on this than any other topic,' said Churchill fervently. "'He turned to Gamelin. "'General, how long would general mobilization take?' "'We have suspected a move on the Rhineland since January, not more than a few days.' Then this is my suggestion, said Churchill. England and France shall issue a combined directive for Herr Hitler to withdraw from the Rhineland. Combine this with general mobilization, and I am convinced that he shall withdraw. And if he does not, asked Laval. Then we attack the Rhineland and drive him back, growled Churchill. That is an abominable proposition, said Cuthbert. Churchill bared his teeth in a smile. One statement that I have often been reviled for is saying that there is no point having an army if one does not use it. Everyone thinks that I mean that the army should be used in order to justify its existence, but I mean quite the opposite. I mean that if one is perceived by one's enemies as lacking the will to use military force, then one might as well not have an army. Not being willing to shoot is exactly the same as not having a gun. Worse, in fact... If you choose to avoid the use of force in this instance, Monsieur Laval, you might as well disband your army, since they will never be taken as a credible force henceforth. What's an argument? cried Cuthbert. We must use it because we have it. We also possess poison, should we use it? This argument is pointless, said Gamelin, turning to Laval. I await the orders of the government. Laval bit a nail. 
The problem is... Well, one of the problems, since there are so many, is that we are not perceived as a legitimate government. We are seen as an interim government caretakers. We possess no mandate strong enough to commit France to war. Which is why her Hitler chose to act now, said Churchill softly. Laval continued as if nothing had been said. If we order a general mobilization of our armed forces, it would move us that much closer to war. If Germany is only taking the Rhineland for defensive reasons, for fear of our treaty with Russia, and because Hitler fears our aggression, and then we mobilize, thus confirming in his eyes our aggression, war shall become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and in slaughter it will outstrip the last war as much as the last war outstripped all which preceded it. I cannot commit myself to such an action, not in the absence of unqualified English support, not in the face of such uncertainty, not for the sake of a land we were considering giving back anyway, not to protect the people who devoutly wish to return to their country. No, no, I cannot. There was a finality to his words, which bled all energy and animation from the discussion. Cuthbert turned to Churchill in triumph, but Churchill was staring out the window, as if hypnotized by something beyond the glass.